This is a space where we explore what it means to live our nature. Vibrant, multidimensional, attuned, creative, in collaboration with nature. Because this is how we experience the fullness of life and relationships, love and creative expression. And I believe that living our lives in this way, as a kind of practice of inhabiting our wholeness, is also how we offer our greatest contributions to the collective. I'm Gray Tanner, and this is The Luminous Slow. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back. happy to be here with you tonight. I am in my studio. The lights are low and I've got a bunch of candles lit and some incense going and a warm mug of tea. I'm all cozied up. It's very snowy and icy and unusually cold here in Portland and I've been snowed in for the last few days into some forced slow down stillness that while has has been making me uncomfortable in some ways and has been disruptive to certain schedules and trajectories uh, in some ways. I've been appreciating the space it's given me to be with myself and to drop into create some creative space, some contemplative space, and to follow some curiosities, to do some offering work, and to romance myself a little bit, and just slow, slow the fuck down. And so in the spirit of all that, I'm coming to you tonight to share some things that have been popping up into my field and that have been resonating with me or things that have come to mind to earlier today this poem came into my field and um i loved it and i was like i want to share that on the podcast and at some point and felt like it's apropos what we've been talking about the last little bit Um, And then immediately another one came into my feed, I think, on Instagram. And I loved that. I'm like, oh, I want to share that one, too. And so that got me thinking, like, well, why don't I just record now? And, oh, I want to, here's this other thing that I've been wanting to read on the pod. And so then I just thought, why don't I just make an episode of a bunch of beautiful things, words that are not mine, that that I enjoy that are resonating. So I went over to my bookshelf to grab the book that had the one essay in it that I wanted to read to you and just allowed myself to stand there and see what books caught my attention. And there were a few others like, oh, that one and that one and that one. And um, so a few, I just picked up some books that I really enjoy and perused some of the readings and just let what was calling to me to be the thing that I read out to you. So I've got several 
different um, pieces from several different books of prose and poetry and um, and then the Instagram poem that I came across earlier today. And I thought that this seems like an appropriate winter, winter words, winter reading, winter experience. And so I'm cozying up here in my golden hand chair and my sheepskins and let's, uh, let's dig in. So I'm going to start with the, the one that I've been wanting to read for a long time. This is one of my favorite, it's part of one of my favorite essays from Rebecca Solnit, an incredible writer. Um, this is from her book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost. And this is an essay that came into my life probably close to a decade or so ago. And this was back when my favorite color was still blue for most of my life. Uh, blue was my favorite color. And in the last several years, it's been replaced by green. But but it is a close second. And um, I have resonated so much with with the, the themes of this. And it's one that that comes to mind a lot when I'm feeling uh, a kind of way. So it's called The Blue of Distance. The world is blue at, at its edges and in its depths. This blue is the light that got lost. Light at the blue end of the spectrum does not travel the whole distance from the sun to us. It disperses among the molecules of the air. It scatters in water. Water is colorless. Shallow water appears to be the color of whatever lies underneath it. But deep water is, the f is full of this scattered light. The purer the water, the deeper the blue. The sky is blue for the same reason, but the blue at the horizon, the blue of the land that seems to be dissolving into the sky, is a deeper, dreamier, melancholy blue. The blue at the farthest reaches of the place where you see for miles. The blue of distance. This light that does not touch us, does not travel the whole distance, the light that gets lost, gives us the beauty of the world, so much of which is in the color blue. For many years I have been moved by the blue at the far edge of what can be seen, that color of horizons, of remote mountain ranges, of anything far away. The color of that distance is the color of an emotion, the color of solitude and of desire, the color of there seen from here, the color of where you are not, and the color of where you can never go. For the blue is not in, excuse me, for the blue is not in the places those miles away at the horizon, but in the atmospheric distance between you and the mountains. Longing, says the poet Robert Haas, because desire is full of endless distances. Blue is the color of longing for the distances you never arrive in, for the blue world. 
one soft, humid early spring morning driving a winding road across Mount, Mount Talampai, the 2,500-foot mountain just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. A bend reveals a sudden vision of San Francisco in shades of blue, a city in a dream, and I was filled with a tremendous yearning to live in that place of blue hills and blue buildings, though I do live there. I had just left there after breakfast, and the brown coffee and the yellow eggs and the green traffic lights filled me with no such desire. And besides, I was looking forward to going hiking on the mountain's west slope. We treat desire as a problem to be solved, address what desire is for, and focus on that something and how to acquire it rather than on the nature and the sensation of desire. Though often it is in the distance between us and the object of desire that fills the space in between with the blue of longing. I wonder sometimes whether with a slight adjustment of perspective it could be cherished as a sensation on its own terms, since it is as inherent to the human condition as blue is to distance. If you can look across the distance without wanting to close it up, if you can own your own longing in the same way that you own the beauty of that blue that can never be possessed, for something of this longing will, like the blue of distance, only be relocated, not assuaged, by acquisition and arrival, just as the mountains seem to be blue when you arrive among them, and the blue instead tints the next beyond. Somewhere in this is the mystery of why tragedies are more beautiful than comedies, and why we take a huge pleasure in the sadness of certain songs and stories. Something is always far away. The mystic Simone Weil wrote to a friend on another continent, quote, Let us love this distance which is thoroughly woven with friendship, since those who do not love each other are never separated. End quote. For a while, love is the atmosphere that fills and colors the distance between herself and her friend. Even if that friend arrives on the doorstep, something remains impossibly remote. When you step forward to embrace them, your arms are wrapped around mystery, around the unknowable, around that which cannot be possessed. The far seeps in, even to the nearest. After all, we hardly know our own depths. Hmm. When I first read that, I was like, she fucking gets it. This is how I felt about Blue for so long. Hmm. I have, a, I have a real thing for the blue of distance. All right. The next I'm going to read is from the book Upstream by Mary Oliver, a book of essays. Hmm. Love Mary, St. Mary. <laughs> Okay, this is called Of Power and Time. It is a silver morning like any other. I am at my desk. 
Then the phone rings or someone raps at the door. I am deep in the machinery of my wits. Reluctantly, I rise. I answer the phone or I open the door. And the thought which I had in hand, or almost in hand, is gone. Creative work needs solitude. It needs concentration without interruptions. It needs the whole sky to fly in and no eye watching until it comes to that certainty which it aspires to, but does not necessarily have at once. Privacy, then. A place apart. To pace, to chew pencils, to scribble and erase, and scribble again. But just as often, if not more often, the interruption comes not from another, but from the self itself, or some other self within the self, that whistles and pounds upon the door, panels and, excuse me, that whistles and pounds upon the door panels and tosses itself splashing into the pond of meditation. And what does it have to say? That you must phone the dentist, that you are out of mustard, that your Uncle Stanley's birthday is two weeks hence. You react, of course, then you return to your work, only to find that the imps of idea have fled back into the mist. It is this internal force, this intimate interrupter, whose tracks I would follow. The world sheds in the energetic way of an open and communal place, its many greetings as a world should. What quarrel can there be with that? But that the self can interrupt the self and does is a darker and more curious matter. I am myself three selves at least. To begin with, there is the child I was. Certainly I'm not that child anymore. Yet distantly, or sometimes not so distantly, I can hear that child's voice. I can feel its hope or its distress. It has not vanished. Powerful, egotistical, insinuating, its presence rises in memory or from the steamy river of dreams. It is not gone not by a long shot. It is with me in the present hour. It will be with me in the grave. And then there is the attentive social self. This is the smiler and the doorkeeper. This is the portion that winds the clock, that steers through the dailiness of life, that keeps in mind appointments that must be made and then met. It is fettered to a thousand notions of obligation. It moves across the hours of the day as though the movement itself were the whole task. Whether it gathers as it goes some branch of wisdom or delight, or nothing at all, is a matter with which it is hardly concerned. What this self hears night and day, what it loves beyond all other songs, is the endless springing forward of the clock, those measures strict and vivacious and full of certainty. The clock that twelve-figured moon skull, that white spider belly. How serenely the hands move with their filigree pointers, and how steadily. Twelve hours, and twelve hours, and begin again. Eat, speak, sleep, cross a street, wash a dish. The clock is still ticking. All its vistas are just so broad, are regular. Notice that word. Every day, twelve little bins in which to order disorderly life. 
an even more disorderly thought. The town's clock cries out, and the face on every wrist hums or shines. The world keeps pace with itself. Another day is passing, a regular and ordinary day. Notice that word also. Say you have bought a a ticket on an airplane, and you intend to fly from New York to San Francisco. What do you ask of the pilot when you climb aboard and take your seat next to the little window, which you cannot open, but through which you see the dizzying heights to which you are lifted from the secure and friendly earth? Most assuredly, you want the pilot to be his regular and ordinary self. You want him to approach and understand his work with no more than a calm pleasure. You want nothing fancy, nothing new. You ask him to do routinely what he knows how to do fly an airplane. You hope he will not daydream. You hope he will not drift into some interesting meander of thought. You want this flight to be ordinary, not extraordinary. So too with the surgeon and the ambulance driver and the captain of the ship. Let all of them work as ordinarily as they do, in confident familiarity with whatever the work requires, and no more. Their ordinariness is the surety of the world. Their ordinariness makes the world go round. I, too, live in this ordinary world. I was born into it. Indeed, most of my education was intended to make me feel comfortable within it. Why that enterprise failed is another story. Such failures happen and then, like all things, are turned to the world's benefit for the world has a need of dreamers as well as shoemakers. Not that it is so simple, in fact, for what shoemaker does not occasionally thump his thumb when his thoughts have, as we would say, wandered. And when the old animal body clamors for attention, what daydreamer does not now and again have to step down from the daydream and hurry to the market before it closes, or else go hungry? And this is also true. In creative work, creative work of all kinds, those who are the world's working artists are not trying to help the world go round, but forward, which is something altogether different from the ordinary. Such work does not refute the ordinary. It is simply something else. Its labor requires a different outlook, a different set of priorities. Certainly there is within each of us a self that is neither a child nor a servant of the hours. It is a third self, occasional in some of us, tyrant in others. This self is out of love with the ordinary. It is out of love with time. It has a hunger for eternity. Intellectual work sometimes, spiritual work certainly, artistic work always. These are forces that fall within its grasp, forces that must travel beyond the realm of the hour and the restraint of the habit. Nor can the actual work be well separated from the entire life. Like the Knights of the Middle Ages, there is is little the creatively inclined person can do but prepare himself, body and spirit, for the labor to come, for his adventures are all unknown. In truth, the work itself is the adventure. 
and no artist could go about his work or would want to with less than extraordinary energy and concentration. The extraordinary is what art is about. Neither is it possible to control or regulate the machinery of creativity. One must work with the creative powers, for to not work with them is to work against. In art as in spiritual life, there is no neutral place. Especially at the beginning, there is a need of discipline as well as solitude and concentration. A writing schedule is a good suggestion to make to young writers, for example. Also, it is enough to tell them. Would one tell them so soon the whole truth, that one must be ready at all hours and always, that the ideas in their shimmering forms, in spite of all our, con- uh, in spite of all our conscious discipline, will come when they will, and on the swift upheaval of their wings, disorderly. Reckless, as unmanageable sometimes as passion. No one yet has made a list of the places where the extraordinary may happen and where it may not. Still, there are indications. Among crowds, in drawing rooms, among easements and comforts and pleasures, it is seldom seen. It likes the out of doors, it likes the concentrating mind. It likes solitude. It is far more likely to stick to the risk-taker than the ticket-taker. It isn't that it would disparage comforts or the set routines of the world, but that its concern is directed to another place. Its concern is the edge, and the making of a form out of the formlessness that is beyond the edge. Of this there can be no question, Creative work requires a loyalty as complete as the loyalty of water to the force of gravity. A person person trudging through the wilderness of creation who does not know this, who does not swallow this, is lost. He who does not crave that roofless place eternity should stay at home. Such a person is perfectly worthy and useful and even beautiful, but is not an artist. Such a person had better live with timely ambitions and finished work form for the sparkle of the moment only. Such a person had better go off and fly an airplane. There is a notion that creative people are absent-minded, reckless, heedless of social customs and obligations. It is, hopefully, true. For they are in another world altogether. It is a world where the third self is governor. Neither is the purity of art the innocence of childhood, if there is such a thing. One's life as a child, with all its emotional rages and ranges, is but, is but grass for the winged horse. It must be chewed well in those savage teeth. There are in, irreconcilable differences between acknowledging and examining the, examining the fabulations of one's past and dressing them up as though they were adult figures fit for art, for which they never will be. The working, concentrating artist is an an adult who refuses interruption from himself, who remains absorbed and energized in and by the work. 
who is thus responsible to the work. On any morning or afternoon, serious interruptions to work, therefore, are never the inopportune, cheerful, even loving interruptions which come to us from another. Serious interruptions come from the watchful eye we cast upon ourselves. There is the blow that knocks the arrow from its mark. There is the drag we throw over our, our own intentions. There is the interruption to be feared. It is 6 a.m. and I am working. I am absent-minded, reckless, heedless of social obligations, etc. It is as it should be. The tire goes flat, the tooth falls out, there will be a hundred meals without mustard. The poem gets written. I have rested with the angel and I am stained with light and I have no shame. Neither do I have guilt. My responsibility is not to the ordinary or the timely. It does not include mustard or teeth. It does not extend to the lost button or the beans in the pot. My loyalty is to the inner vision, whenever and howsoever it may arrive. If I have a meeting with you at three o'clock, rejoice if I am late. Rejoice even more if I do not arrive at all. There is no other way work of artistic worth can be done, and the occasional success to the striver is worth everything. The most regretful people on earth are those who felt the call to creative work, who felt their own creative power restive and uprising, and gave to it neither power nor time. Hmm. Feels. Feels. Mary fucking Oliver, yes. That woman was a gift to us all. All right, next one. Mm. This comes from a slim volume of loveliness <laughs> um, by the writer Pico Ayer. It's called The Art of Stillness. Adventures in Going Nowhere. And I pulled this off my shelf because, well, it's winter and it is the season. So this is called The Charting of Stillness. I'm just going to read part of it to you. Writers, are, writers of course, are obliged by our professions to spend much of our time going nowhere. Our creations come not when we're out in the world, gathering impressions, but when we're sitting still, turning those impressions into sentences. Our job, you could say, is to turn through stillness a life of movement into art. Sitting still is our workplace, sometimes our battlefield. At the blonde wood child's desk where I write in Japan, I have one constant companion, 
and he is alight with stories about glittery parties in the war, about ravishing, ravishing beauties and society hostesses and bejeweled knights at the opera. But Marcel Proust could bring this thronged world home to me only by sitting still in a cork-lined room, nearly alone, for years on end, exploring the ways in which we remake the world in more permanent form in our heads. That, in fact, was the idea behind his epic novel, the title of which is sometimes rendered as Remembrance of Things Past. We glimpse a stranger in the street, and the exchange lasts barely a moment. But then we go home and think on it, and think on it, and try to understand what the glance meant, and inspect it from this angle and from that one, spinning futures and fantasies around it. The experience that lasted an instant plays out for a lifetime inside us. It becomes, in fact, the story of our lives. My other loyal companion in Japan, as he has been since I was a teenager, a teenager traveling from Dharamsala to Bogota and Barbados, is, as it happens, the roaming troubadour whose debut album had featured four songs with the world travel at their center. The first song Leonard Cohen ever delivered in public was about a man taking out an old train schedule, a highway, quote, curling up like smoke above his shoulder, end quote. One of the most heartfelt numbers on that maiden record found him saying goodbye to a woman because he had to wander in my time. Leonard Cohen had become the poet laureate of those on the road, refusing to stick to any form or settling down, a gypsy boy who wouldn't sit still within any of the expectations we brought to him. But like many a wanderer, he seemed always to know that it's only when you stop moving that you can be moved in some far deeper way. Um, the book to which he's referring in the beginning, Marcel Proust, um, remembrance, remembrance of Things Past, or sometimes called In Search of Lost Time, is a magnificent book. I think it's something like 1,600 pages, so a series of books, it's a tome, and mm. all about this kind of sense memory. All right, um, the, the Instagram poem I meant to read to you earlier had sort of an arc to this, but, well, that is gone. Um, it's a new one. So this, this is the poem that, that I just discovered today by John Rodel, Rodel, hope I'm pronouncing that right. Most of the holes that I have fallen down, 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 down into turned out to be cocoons. They weren't tombs, my love, they were wombs. Um, so that's the, the one that sparked this 
whole idea for this share tonight and felt very fitting from the last couple of episodes that I recorded with y'all. Um, all right. I hope all of this page rustling feels more atmospheric than distracting. <laughs> mm. Um, so this is coming from a book by Cheryl Strayed. Mm, you may know her from the book Wild. She wrote the book Wild that was then adapted into a film. And for a number of years, I don't know if she's still doing this, but she was writing this advice column called Dear Sugar. So she was writing under the pseudonym of Sugar. And um, I think it became a podcast at one point in time. I used to actually used to listen to it many years ago. Um, and then eventually some of these letters and her responses were put into a book, which is called Tiny Beautiful Things, Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar. So again, Cheryl Strayed. So this one I'm going to read out to you is called The Future Has an Ancient Heart. And apologies for all my... Um, my reading stumbles this is the downside to having low light and you know now being in your 40s and not being able to see very well um but again atmospheric okay the future has an ancient heart dear sugar i teach creative writing at the university of alabama where the majority of my students are seniors graduating soon most of them are English and creative writing majors or minors who are feeling a great deal of dread and anxiety about their expulsion from academia and their entry into, quote, the real world. Many of their friends and other disciplines have already lined up postgraduate jobs, and many of my students are tired of the, quote, being an English major prepares you for law school, comments being made by friends and family alike who are pressuring them toward a career in law despite having little or no interest in it. I have been reading your columns to my students in an attempt to pep them up and let them know that everything is going to be all right. Mm. I have a sip of tea here. Our school has decided to forgo a graduation speaker for the last five years or so. And even when we did have a graduation speaker, often they were leaders in business or former athletes, and so their, messages was, their message was lost on the ears of a majority of 21 and 22-year-olds. So, Sugar, I'm asking you to deliver a graduation speech for our little class of writers. While we might have difficulty obtaining you an honorary PhD, Believe me when I say that among us are some extremely talented writers, bakers, musicians, editors, designers, and video game players who will gladly write you a lyric essay, bake you a pie, write you a song, and perform countless other acts of kindness in exchange for your advice. Fondly, Cupcake and Team 408. Dear Cupcake and Team 408, There is a line by the Italian writer Carlo Le Levi, that I think is apt here. The future has an ancient heart. 
I love it because it expresses with such grace and economy what is certainly true. That who we become is born of who we most primitively are. That we both know and cannot possibly know what it is we've yet to make manifest in our lives. I think it's a useful sentiment for you to reflect upon now, sweet peas. At this moment, when the future likely feels the opposite of ancient, when instead it feels like a Lamborghini that's pulled up to the curve while every voice around demands you you get in and drive. I'm here to tell you that it's okay to travel by foot. In fact, I recommend it. There is so much ahead that's worth seeing, so much behind you can't identify at top speed. Your teacher is correct. You're going to be all right. And you're going to be all right not because you majored in English or didn't, and not because you plan to apply to law school or don't, but because all right is almost always where we eventually land, even if we fuck up entirely along the way. I know. I fucked up some things. I was an English major too. As it happens, I lied for six years about having an English degree, though I didn't exactly mean to lie. I had gone to college and participated in a graduation ceremony. I'd walked across the stage and collected a paper baton. On that, it said a bachelor's degree would be mine once I finished one final class. It seemed like such an easy thing to do, but it wasn't. And so I didn't do it, and the years slipped past, each one making it seem more unlikely that I'd ever get my degree. I'd done all the coursework except that one class. I'd gotten good grades. To claim that I had an English degree was truer than not, I told myself. But that didn't make it true. You have to do what you have to do. There's absolutely nothing wrong with law school, but don't go unless you want to be a lawyer. You can't take a class if taking a class feels like it's going to kill you. Faking it never works. If you don't believe me, Read Richard Wright, read Charlotte Bronte, read Joy Harjo, read Toni Morrison, read William Trevor, read the entire Western canon. Or just close your eyes and remember everything you already know. Let whatever mysterious starlight that guided you thus far guide you onward into whatever crazy beauty awaits. Trust that all you learned during your college years was worth learning, no matter what answer you will have or not have about what, it, about what use it is. Know that all those stories, poems, plays, and novels are a part of you now, and that they are bigger than you, and they always will be. I was a waitress during most of the years that I didn't have my English degree. My mother had been a waitress for many of the years that she was raising my siblings and me. She loved to read. She always wanted to go to college. One time she took a night class when I was very young and my father became enraged with her and cut her textbook into pieces with a pair of scissors. She dropped the class. I think it was biology. You don't have to get a job that makes others feel comfortable about what they perceive as your success. You don't have to explain what you plan to do with your life. You don't have to justify your education by demonstrating its financial rewards. 
you don't have to maintain an impeccable credit score. Anyone who expects you to do any of those things has no sense of history or economics or science or the arts. You have to pay your own electric bill. You have to be kind. You have to give it all you've got. You have to find people who love you truly and love them back with the same truth. But that's all. I got married when I was in college. I got divorced during the years that I was lying about having an English degree. When I met the man to whom I am now married, he said, You know, I really think you should finish your degree. Not because I want you to, but because I can tell you want to. I thought he was sort of being an asshole. We didn't bring up the subject again for a year. I understand what you're afraid of. I understand what your parents fear. There are practical concerns. One needs money to live. And then there is the deep longing to feel legitimate in the world, to feel that others hold us in regard. I felt, in, I felt intermittently ashamed during my years as a waitress. In my family, I was supposed to be the one who, quote, made it. At times, it seemed instead I had squandered my education and dishonored my, my dead mother by becoming a waitress like her. Sometimes I would think of it as I went from table to table with my tray, and I'd have to think of something else so I wouldn't cry. Years after I no longer worked at the last restaurant where I waited tables, my first novel was published. The man who'd been my man manager at the restaurant read about me in the newspaper and came to my reading. He'd often been rude and snappish with me, and I'd despised him on occasion, but I was touched to see him in the bookstore that night. All those years ago, who would have guessed we'd be here celebrating the publication of your novel, he asked when we embraced. I would have, I replied. And it was true. I always would have guessed, even if all the time I feared it would never happen. Being there that night was the meaning of my life. Getting there had been my every intention. When I say you don't have to explain what you're going to do with your life, I'm not suggesting you lounge around whining about how difficult it is. I'm, I'm suggesting you apply yourself in directions for which we have no accurate measurement. I'm talking about work and love. It's really condescending to tell you how young you are. It's even inaccurate. Some of you who are graduating from college are not young. Some of you are, are older than me. But to those of you new college graduate who are, who are indeed young, the old new college graduates will back me up on this. You are so goddamn young. Which means about eight of the ten things you have decided about yourself will, over time, prove to be false. The other two things will prove to be so true that you'll look back in 20 years and howl. My mother was young too, but not like those of you who are so goddamn young. She was 40 when she finally went to college. She spent the last years of her life as a college student, though she didn't know they were her last years. She thought she was at the beginning of the next era of her life. She died a couple of months before we were both supposed to graduate from different schools. 
At her memorial service, my mother's favorite professor stood up and granted her an honorary PhD. The most terrible and beautiful and interesting things happen in the life. For some of you, those things have already happened. Whatever happens to you belongs to you. Make it yours. Feed it to yourself, even if it feels impossible to swallow. Let it nurture you, because it will. I have learned this over and over and over again. There came a day when I decided to stop lying. I called the college from what I from which I did not have an English degree and asked the woman who answered the phone what I needed to do to get one. She told me I had to only take one class. It could be any class. I chose Latin. I'd never studied Latin, but I wanted to know at last where so many of our words come from. I had a romantic idea of what it would be like to study Latin. The Romance languages are, after all, descended from it. But it wasn't romantic. It was a lot of confusion and memorization and attempting to decipher bizarre stories about soldiers marching around ancient lands. In spite of my best efforts, I got a B. One thing I never forgot from my Latin class is that a language that is descended from another language is called a daughter language. It was the beginning of the next era of my life, like this is of yours. Years after I no longer lived in the state where my mother and I went to college, I traveled to that state to give a reading from my first novel. Just as my former boss had done in a different city mere weeks before, the professor who'd granted my mother a PhD at her memorial service read about me in the newspaper and came to the bookstore to hear me read. All those years ago, who would have guessed we'd be here celebrating the publication of your novel, she asked when we embraced. Not me, I replied. Not me. And it was true. I meant it as sincerely as I'd meant that I always would have guessed it would have when I had been speaking to my boss. That both things could be true at once, my disbelief as well as my certainty, was the unification of the ancient and the future parts of me. It was everything I intended, and yet still I was surprised by what I got. I hope you will be surprised and knowing at once. I hope you'll always have love. I hope you'll have days of ease and a good sense of humor. I hope one of you really will bake me a pie. Banana cream, please. I hope when people ask what you're going to do with your English and or creative writing degree, you'll say, continue my bookish examination of the contradictions and complexities of human motivation and desire. Or maybe just carry it with me as I do everything that matters and then smile very serenely until they say, Oh, yours, sugar. Hmm. <laughs> mm. Okay. This last one. Um... 
realizing I lost my place in the book. <laughs> hmm. Which is kind of fitting given what the poem is about. But... So this is, as I'm looking for it, I'll try to multitask. Um, so this is a, a book of poetry and prose by the poet Nayira Wahid. Um, and the book is called Nejma, I think is the pronunciation, N-E-J-M-A. Um, here is a stunning poet, um, came into my world through Instagram several years ago. Um, all right, this is called as you are, you are the prayer. And this is what we'll close with. As you are, says the universe, after you answer. As you are, says the universe, before you answer. As you are, says the universe when you answer as you are says the universe how you answer as you are says the universe why you answer because you are happening now right now right at this moment and your happening is beautiful the thing that both keeps me alive and brings me to my knees. You don't even know how breathtaking you are, as you are, says the universe through tears. Mm. Thanks for being with me tonight, y'all. This felt good to share, and I hope you felt, feel, some nourishment, some validation, some inspiration, some curiosity, some knowing, some love through these words. Love y'all. See you next time.